Hello and welcome to the Forge Podcast. My name is James, and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary, and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I have been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in the scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now, grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the hearing and reading of His Word. Hello and welcome back to The Forge. This is the first episode of our second season, what we are calling our second season. And we are going to be in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and we are going to cover the first eight verses. That's verse 1 through 8 in the book of Genesis. I can promise you that in the future, we're going to take more than eight verses at a time. But here at the beginning of the book of Genesis, wanted to take it kind of slow, wanted to just look at the first eight verses which will take us through the first two days of creation. As we go through the book of Genesis, not just in this episode, but in episodes that are coming, I want you to be on the lookout uh, for the beginnings of things. Indeed, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. And as an example, several examples I can give you, uh, we're looking at the beginning of mankind, the beginning of man himself, the first man is created. 
the beginning of the first family, the beginning of Seth's line all the way to Jesus. Well, who is Seth and why is that a big deal? Well, Seth is uh, one of the sons of Adam and he is in the line of Jesus. So his descendants eventually will result in the savior of the world. In Genesis, unfortunately, we do have the beginning of sin. And even in the book of Genesis, we see the beginning of God's plan of redemption. When I began studying the book of Genesis several years ago, um, I read a book entitled The Genesis Record by Henry M. Morris. It's a great book of uh, scientific and biblical support. Um, but not only that, it's just a good, solid commentary. Somewhat dated by today's standards, but still a great recommend. I uh, encourage you to get that. If you can find it, I'm sure you can. Uh, probably find a, a cheap copy on Amazon or something like that. And read the Genesis record as you go through the book of Genesis verse by verse. And um, I just want to encourage you to open your mind as we read the book of Genesis. Everything that you think you may know, set it aside and just ask God to speak to you afresh and anew. Uh, ask him to show you things in his word. Um, any skepticisms that you may have, um, I ask that you would uh, not necessarily get rid of all those questions, but keep an open mind to what the Holy Spirit would lead you to. Anytime we start to talk about the beginning of things, we start to talk about creation, uh, God, inevitably the question of evolution, uh, different uh, thoughts, different theories, different things always come to the surface whenever we're talking in the book of Genesis. So uh, all I'm going to ask of my audience, whoever is listening to this, keep an open mind. Um, be willing to uh, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you uh, through his word. And I can promise you, anytime you approach God as a believer and, and you say, God, teach me, open my heart, open my mind, open my eyes. I want to read your word. I want to understand you. Friends, I can assure you that the Holy Spirit will meet you there. He will meet you there and he will illuminate the mind, the eyes, the ears of the believer. So with that being said, we're going to start Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. 
So starting right off with verse 1, you cannot go further back than God. And what I mean by this is that God is the great first cause. And this will be a phrase that I'll use a lot as we talk about creation and the existence of God. There's a phrase in theological and philosophical circles uh, which is used to describe how we can arrive at the conclusion that God is real. Um, And this has to do with regression, that is, going backward. Um, There's the idea of infinite regression and the idea of finite regression. And this comes from the idea that everything we know of in our human experience is acted upon by something else. This idea of things acting upon other things cannot go on forever into eternity past for all infinity. And thus, it indicates that at some point there had to be the prime mover, the one who initiated the movement. Now, of course, there are people that do believe in infinite regression, um, but it's simply not as reasonable as the idea that there had to be a great first cause or the idea of a prime mover. There had to be a start. There had to be, as I've already alluded to, that great original first cause. And the Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, says, A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The psalmist is simply pointing out there that if you just pause and think, there has to be a great first cause. You'll notice that in the first verse of the Bible, God makes no attempt to explain himself. He makes no attempt to explain his origins. And I have read this many times in my life, memorized the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God. (laughs) And I think of Moses who uh, said, who will I tell them has sent me? What's your name? And God's answer is, I am. The I am is the one who sent you. And so uh, there's also within uh, philosophical circles, there's this thing called the ontological argument for God. Now, ontological arguments, whether they're about God or anything else, um, they claim, the claim of the ontological view is that whatever conclusion you reach, it is reached by reason alone. And I've decided not to explain it. In fact, this is all I'm going to say about it. If you want to read about the ontological argument for God, uh, feel free to look it up on the interweb. (laughs) The interweb, as I say, the internet. Um, If you want to hear me talk about it at some point in the future, please feel free to go to the link in the show notes, leave me a voice message, and I'll consider getting into it in a future episode. Um, And that's really all I'm going to say about the ontological argument argument for God. God, by definition, must be what is called the greatest conceivable being. He must be the driving force. He must be that great first cause, the prime mover, the originator. 
And of course, as a believer in Christ, we believe that God is that great, eternal, self-existent being. So as we contemplate this very first verse of the entire Bible, I'm reminded of what the Bible tells us about the utter foolishness of men. I want to read a passage to you from Romans chapter 1. It's verse 22 through verse 25. And it says this, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Those few verses there in the book of Romans are a sermon in and among themselves. But it's interesting to me that the more a culture rejects the absolute truth of God, the further down into chaos that culture goes. And you may be asking, well, what does this passage in Romans have to do with the first few verses of the book of the Bible? Well, I see this passage in Romans as not only a connection between false worship and sexual perversion, but it's a connection between refusing to retain God in our knowledge and literally worshiping the creation. And in Rome, which would be the setting for the book of Romans, that's why it's entitled Romans, it's sent to the church in Rome. Um, as it was in ancient Rome, it was also the case in all the ancient cultures going all the way back to man's fall. They did indeed worship idols. Uh, these idols would appear to be a cross between something that was both human uh, and animal. It would have human and animal features. And we've all seen pictures and statues of these kinds of things. Um, and so what Paul's pointing out here is that they are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And I ask you, is this not the exact same thing that evolution does? One of the irritating things about evolution for me personally, is that evolution 
is a religion masquerading as science. It is a religion masquerading as science. And let me explain what I mean by that. See, evolution has many problems that cannot be answered by science. It does not explain, to start with, the very first cause. See, true evolution has no place for a God of any kind, much less the God of the Bible. And the latest explanation that I actually heard um, for the origin of the Big Bang uh, is that the Big Bang came about when nothing became unstable. And you, you need to think about that statement. And I actually heard this in a debate. Nothing, which by definition is no thing, became unstable. And that from that instability, there was an explosion. And so, how does the absence of anything and everything become unstable? I don't, I don't know. But this kind of statement requires faith. It requires faith to believe it, since on its surface, it is absolutely absurd. And evolutionists know this. And they know they have a problem. And you can rarely get an evolutionist to be honest with you about this. But there's a few questions that you can ask your evolutionist friends. And I have done this with several people over time. Many people probably. And don't be surprised when they get angry with you. Especially if you hold them to the question. And you don't let them budge away from the question. The very first question, where did the matter come from? Where did the matter come from? And do not tell me that nothing became unstable. Was there anyone there to observe the very first Big Bang? Assuming that we had matter that came from nowhere, did anybody observe it? No, they didn't. See, the first thing that's done in the scientific method is observation. And there was no one there at the Big Bang to observe it. So my question is, is the scientific method being truly used at the very start of evolution and evolutionary theory? Does matter plus energy equal life? And the answer is yes. According to evolution, matter plus energy will equal life. Yet no one has been able to produce life, even under controlled conditions in a laboratory, um, by just adding energy to matter. But evolution claims that it all happened by chance. Total chance with no guidance from an outside source. So another question, which I have seen uh, in several discussions with, like I said, with several people I've known from an evolutionary point of view, there are no transitional forms in the fossil record, and this drives the true evolutionist crazy. Darwin thought that by now we would have surely have found some transitional forms. What is a transitional form? A transitional form is what others have called a missing link, and there are missing links everywhere in the story of evolution. In fact, Darwin even stated that his entire system would fail if the transitional forms were not found. See, he was counting on that eventually through enough 
digging and study and all the rest, we would eventually have some transitional forms, and we don't. All we have are artists rendering in textbooks of what they think it might have looked like, but there aren't any transitional forms. Did you know there were petrified trees that go through various layers of the geological column? And this would actually point to evidence of a worldwide flood, wouldn't it? Because it certainly has the appearance that layers of earth were brought down with uh, great force and great speed, and they slammed down on these trees, in fact, uh, so fast with such force that the trees did not even have time or space to fall over. The trees were uh, trapped in the layers of mud, if you will. And I've personally seen film footage and photos of these types of formation formations, and it's truly an awesome thing to see. Um, I had a friend in my military experience. He had majored in geology, of all things, had a degree in it. Of course, he was a pilot. Now, I don't know why you need a degree in geology to be a pilot, but hey, that's the master sergeant talking, so what do I know? Uh, regardless, he and I talked about this, and he knew this to be true. And he even said to me, I have no explanation for that. And all the things that I've read, and he, he still uh, kind of enjoyed the study of rocks and the earth and all of that, everything that is geology. And he, he said, yeah, I've seen that. And all I can tell you is I, I don't know. And as far as I know, no one knows. Well, if you believe the Bible, if you believe there was a great flood, which we haven't read about yet, then it provides an explanation that is reasonable for seeing trees through these layers of different um, formations. So evolution depends on what I call the it just happened statements. It just happened. There happened to be the specific and correct chemical combinations that randomly were brought together. And remember, this has to happen with no outside force, um, ultimately uh, to produce everything basically that we see around us today. And so why do we not observe any new creation taking place? To be clear, I'm not talking about variations within a species. Um, I want an evolutionist to explain to me why, when we start out with a dog, for example, we always end up with a dog. Now, there's all kinds of dogs. There's variations, but you don't start out with a dog and end up with something else. And it's the same for everything in the entire animal kingdom. Look at the variation among elephants. Um, <laughs> but you still have an elephant. Uh uh, look at the variation even among humans, which I would simply point out. This points to a creator who is um, extremely creative. And look at the diversity of his creation that he has made. Um, we have humans of every shape and size and color. And look at all, all of our different facial features and um, just everything. Look at tall humans and short humans and um, of course we have wide humans some are wider than others but um, the point is is that it's still a human being it's still a human being whether you want to admit it or not they're still humans and so 
My only point with all of this is there is no uh, new creation taking place. There's only variation within the same grouping. So the chances become so great when you start looking at these things that a reasonable person would have to say that these things are impossible, especially since nobody has ever observed them. And I'll keep coming back to that. No one's ever observed them. And you'll say, well, no one's ever observed what you're claiming about the Bible says either. Nobody observed that. Nobody was there when God created. True. I am going to get to that in the future. Talk about it a little bit. But you're exactly right. Here is the huge difference. I am not claiming to be a scientist. I am not telling you that what I believe in my heart, what I know to be true from the study of God's word, I'm not telling you that that is science. And that, my friends, that is the difference. You see, an evolutionist would rather say that life on this planet was seeded here by aliens or perhaps amino acids on the backs of crystals. Uh, they were sparked to life when lightning hit, rather than admit that there is a creator who did it. And you may have heard of the famous atheist Richard Dawkins, and this is where he finds himself. It was amino acids on the backs of crystals when lightning hit it. I just think of that. And you still haven't explained where the crystals came from, where did the amino acids come from, and where did the lightning come from? And I even heard Dawkins say in an interview that he would be more inclined to believe that life was actually seeded here by aliens from another planet, but that even those aliens uh, did not have a god, that it was just this infinite regression that we talked about earlier of aliens going around the universe over time seeding life everywhere. And I want you to think about that. It's not, this isn't science fiction that we're talking about here. Okay? This is what people are actually willing to believe rather than to believe the simple truth that a creator did it. Why does man resist the idea of a creator exactly the way God reveals himself in scripture? Why? Because if there's a creator, it means he gets to make the rules. And this means that I might be guilty of breaking his rules. It means that you might be guilty of breaking his rules. And if that's the case, then we've got to find out which creator is the true God. Because the world offers us many gods that we can choose from. We've got to find the true God. We have to admit our failure. And we have to seek his forgiveness. And friends... Mankind does not want to do that. See, the evolutionists are afraid of this line of thinking because it points to Christianity as the one true religion. And honestly, I don't even like saying that Christianity is a religion because Christianity is the truth. Now, you may not like that as you're listening to me right now. Uh, it, it's just too bad. <laughs> Christianity is the truth, and it states that God made a way for us to get back to him, and we don't have to work for it. Christianity is the one belief system that says salvation is free. This is also one of the things that 
absolutely isolates Christianity from the entire rest of the world, all the worldviews, all the false religions, because they all teach that salvation can be earned. As I've said in a previous podcast, give me the moral code. Give me a checklist so I can check it off and say all the good things that I have done. And Christianity says your checklist isn't going to matter. Christianity says salvation is a free gift. You must humble yourself and come to Christ. And evolution is truly nothing more than a very elaborate man-made religion that makes man the one who is in charge. You don't have to submit to God because there is no God in evolution. There is no God in evolution. Creation shows that there is design to everything around us. And the examples of this are, are once again, this is one of those things that I'm not going to get into here. I'm just going to scratch the surface. Feel free to do your own research um, with truly with honest research, with the resources that are available to us today, you can learn so much about mathematical patterns that appear in creation, in flowers, in plant life of all kinds, Um, even in the deepest places of the ocean among sea creatures. uh, We see intricate design and detail throughout all of creation. And to believe that There's that kind of a complexity of design and there's no designer is to, frankly, be foolish. And of course, the true evolutionist does not want to admit that because to admit that there's a designer means that God is that designer. I would like to recommend three um, very impressive documentaries The first one I want to talk to you about is a documentary called The Privileged Planet. Now, the movie uh, The Privileged Planet is a documentary based on a book by the same title. Uh, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards are the two academics behind both the film and the book. And I want to tell you about Guillermo Gonzalez. He's an astronomer, um, and he was denied tenure at Iowa State University. Now, one of his assertions was that there was an intelligent designer of the universe and that not only that, but that the earth has been placed in a position that is best suited to make astronomical observations. Now, notice I didn't say anything in there about Christianity, didn't say anything in there about God, just the fact that there appears to be a reasonable person would look at this and go, there has to be an intelligent designer. And I'm sure that his um, tenure denial at Iowa State had nothing to do with his his assertions. Probably not. I'm, I'm sure it's just coincidence that he was claiming that there's facts that point to an intelligent designer. It's probably just you know, a coincidence that his tenure was denied. Along those same lines, thinking about people losing their tenure or being denied tenure, however you want, whatever terminology you want to use, there's a second film, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And 
just out of curiosity, I looked up Expelled on Wikipedia. I was just curious uh, what the um, uh, Wikipedia would say, what, what would be out there in the world of uh, information, the internet age. What would they say about this movie, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed? This movie is actually labeled as propaganda. This movie is propaganda, and it stops just short of calling it an outright conspiracy film. Now, you have to understand that the movie is hosted by someone named Ben Stein. Ben Stein is not a Christian. He is not a Christian. It's my understanding that Ben Stein is from Jewish heritage, but all he was simply pointing out here is that those people like Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards who have just simply raised the question, hey, look, it looks like there's intelligent design here. They have been shut down. They have been shouted down. They have been blackballed and they have been removed from the world of academia. And why is this important? Well, it's important because in the university, in the world of academia, you should welcome all ideas, reason together, and come to reasonable conclusions. And that's hard to do whenever one view is completely shut down. And again, I would just point out that Ben Stein isn't coming at this from a Christian uh, angle. And I don't want to give the whole movie away in case somebody listening to this, they might actually watch the movie um, but Ben Stein makes a very interesting connection to Adolf Hitler, who honestly thought that he was doing a good thing by following evolutionary principles to get rid of who? To get rid of Jewish people. So you can see why Wikipedia would call it propaganda and possibly even a conspiracy nut kind of film. But the connections are undeniable. In fact, Hitler would have probably thought that he was doing the quote-unquote right thing, the correct thing, because he was following an evolutionary idea. Purify the gene pool and make a superior race. So I encourage you to watch it Make your own decision. Is it propaganda or is Ben Stein on to something with this movie? Another film, the third film I wanted to talk to you about, is a film called Is Genesis History? Interesting play on words there. Is Genesis History? Um, it's also slammed by Wikipedia. I figured while I was out there, I'd just look up Is Genesis History? Now, I saw this in a theater uh, when it came out. And this is what Wikipedia has to say about uh, the movie is Genesis history. And this is a quote. It is a Christian film that uses the pseudoscience of creation science to promote young earth creationist beliefs that contradict established scientific facts regarding the origin of the universe. Isn't that something? No observation took place, but these are established scientific facts regarding 
the origin of the universe. You see, these types of comments ignore the fact that even textbooks have changed. Even their own textbooks have changed. They have evolved over time, if you will. It's because the timeline has to be constantly moved back to account for more unseen changes. Remember, we have no transitional forms. So older textbooks will say two billion years on a given subject, for example, and then the next edition comes out, and it's just a subtle change, but this one says 6 billion years. Well, which was it? Was it 2 billion or 6 billion? That's 4 billion years difference. And then you read the later edition, same topic, same subject, and it's been changed to 10 billion years. And I have seen this even in the short time that I've been alive <laughs> uh, from the textbooks that I use versus the textbooks of today. So why has the timeline been expanded? Because science discovers that things are actually more complex than they originally thought. So the timeline has got to be moved backward to allow for mutations that are supposed to move upward. Think about that. Mutations that move upward. Mutations, however, always move creation in a downward direction. There's not one single bit of evidence anywhere which shows that a mutation getting better over time is going to actually give you a new species or improve on what we already have. In fact, a mutation always makes things worse. That's why it is a mutation. It is the source of birth defects, deformities, um, missing components in the developmental process which lead to death or handicaps or other things. Show me a mutation that moves upward. There isn't any. And scientists know this. Medicine knows this. And then there's my personal favorite, irreducible complexity. The smaller things get, the more complex we find things are. Science can always ask the question, well, what is that component made from? What is its function within the cell? What is its function within the smaller component? And there are always things going on in our cells, even right now. And, and listen, I am thankful for medicine. I am thankful for science. I am thankful for men and women who've dedicated their life to the study of these things. But there are things going on in our cells that even right now, scientists don't know what they are doing, what the components are. I'm not talking about the science scientists. I'm talking about the, the mechanisms within the cell. And the idea that things start out simple and they gradually gain complexity, it's just simply not supported by science. In fact, what we're finding, the deeper we dig, the smaller we go, the more complex things seem to be. And science actually shows us that there really is no such thing as a simple cell. We've discovered that cells are extremely complex. And this is a problem for the evolutionary idea because the original idea was that cells would be simple in composition. And it's a problem because that's um, not what we have observed. See, the fact is that complexity within the cell 
does not necessarily equal a higher life form. And that's a problem for evolutionists. I will finish this portion by talking about the universe. Uh, even the evolutionists uh, admit that the universe has a finite amount of energy. There's a limit to the universe's energy. And this just simply points to a beginning. In other words, we are winding down. And that would imply that there was at some point in the past a winding up. So there had to be a beginning as things begin to move forward in time. They slow down. Um, it also has something to do with the second law of thermodynamics, that the quantity of available energy is decreasing. And this also means that the universe will eventually come to an end. And this is something that the creationist uh, Christians and evolutionists, uh, we can agree that eventually this universe is going to come to an end. But the difference is that it, as Christians, I'm not claiming that my belief is a science. Um, we state that there was a big bang, for example, um, but the source was God. And he created, this is a little fancy $50 lingo for you here, ex nihilo, meaning ex nihilo, meaning what? He created from nothing by the power of his word. The evolutionists will tell you that nothing became unstable. And I'm telling you that the God of the universe created from nothing by the power of his word. And there are a couple of words in Hebrew we're going to talk about, um, which, you know, I think this is a good time to bring it up. Um, bara, B-A-R-A would be how I would write that in English. It means to create from nothing. And this is what God did in Genesis. This is the Hebrew word that's used for God creating from nothing. He is, again, as I've said before, the great first cause. Why do I make a big deal about that? Because there's another Hebrew word, asa, and that word means to create something from another substance that already exists. This is what you see mankind doing when we build something from a natural resource. I had to get my material from something that was already in existence, already created by God. And we don't see that word being used um, for the creation that God is doing. In other words, God created from nothing. And I just simply bring this out to let you know, just like in the English language, if I'm trying to communicate an idea, there are words that I can use to, to communicate to you. It is the same in Hebrew. If they would have meant to say that this was symbolic or theoretical or poetic or um, some kind of figurative language or something other than what it clearly states, they had words available to them. But they chose the word that means God created from nothing. So, at this point, I want to discuss a couple of different theories which attempt to allow for evolution within the Bible. And there's flaws with each one of these. And by flaws, I mean that blending these two ideologies together um, is not being faithful to either one. Of course, you can believe whatever you want. And I know there's Christians that have kind of their own spin on things. And there's uh, evolutionists that have their spin on, 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 on these things. All I'm showing you here is that you can't be true to evolution, evolutionary theory, 
and at the same time be true to what the Bible states about God. So, my job here is to just point out these inconsistencies to you. These ideas are not in harmony. Evolution and the scriptures are not friends. So the first idea that I want to talk to you about is called theistic, theistic, sorry, theistic evolution. And this states that God started everything, but evolution is the process that he chose to use. And friends, this is not the God of the Bible. That's one reason why I made such a big deal about the Hebrew word that is used. Theistic, I'm having a hard time saying it, theistic evolution would be um, allowing for death before sin. It would also mean that God didn't know uh, what he wanted to do. Uh, he wasn't exactly sure. So we have God kind of using mutations. You know those mutations that always move in an upward direction and not a downward direction. Um, and he would use these mutations until he finally arrived at what we might recognize as man. And you can believe that if you want to, like I said, but it's in direct conflict with what the Bible clearly states, not only concerning creation, but what the Bible reveals to us about God's holy character. See, God's not in the process of learning and not really sure what he wants to do, so he's going to kind of roll the dice and start the evolutionary process and just let it ride and see where it ends up. That's not God. That may be a God of your imagination, but God knows everything. And God does what he does with purpose, with intention, and everything that God does. Listen here, this is important. Everything that God does is good. He doesn't do anything bad. So, another theory states that the days of Genesis are different time periods. Different time periods for the days in Genesis. And this also presents its own set of problems. For example, even though we haven't read about it yet today, you've got plant life on day three, but you don't have any sunlight until day four. So how long can a plant live without sun? Adam is created on day six, even if each day was only 100 years under this model, it makes Adam too old when he leaves the garden. And Adam has Seth when he was 130 years old, and he dies at 930. Pause button. Non-believers hear that, and they go, that's ridiculous. Nobody lives to be almost 1,000 years old. You're telling me that the first man that Adam lived to be 930? You're telling me that he had a son when he was 130? Folks, stay with me as we go through the book of Genesis, and I will explain to you the, the uh, long ages and the numbers of years that we find in the book of Genesis. Another theory that was popular, at least when I was a teenager, uh, the gap theory. Uh, the gap theory states that between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis, that... Um, there was a gap, and that angels could have inhabited the earth. And some even go so far as to say that Lucifer ruled the earth after uh, his rebellion against God. Uh, the earth that was under Lucifer's rule at that time fell, and God froze everything. And he allowed the earth to go into darkness, and, uh, and that's where the statement, you know, um, the void comes from, that God made the, the earth void. And then after some indefinite period of time, then verse 2 happens. Um, 
when I first heard this, like I said, as a teenager, I kind of liked this idea because if there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2, then I can insert, I can insert billions upon billions upon billions of years. I can get everything I need to get in there to make evolution have harmony with the Bible. There's just a problem with it, and it's simply this. There's nothing in the Bible that supports this kind of a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. You got to take some giant leaps um, hermeneutically to get a gap in between verse one and verse two. Um, that's not what happened. It's much better to take the Bible for what it actually says, and this is what it actually says. And I know this because I've actually drawn this out, and I was actually thinking earlier today how I could explain the timelines that I've drawn out. In a podcast, I may have to make a video for it and post that on my uh, webpage, jamesreadsforge.com. But basically, what you end up with is that all of this happened about 6,000 years ago. Now, there could be more time, but at any rate, it wasn't billions upon billions upon billions of years. The idea of a younger Earth, about 6,000 years, maybe as much as 10,000 years, it supports the idea of Noah's flood. And we know that when animals die, for example, and I'm going to talk about Noah's flood here for just a minute, when animals die, they rot. They don't make fossils unless they're pressed together in clay or some kind of a hard substance like concrete under great pressure, like what could have happened in a flood. You know, human footprints Fossils of human footprints have been found with dinosaur footprints, which shows that they were alive at the same time and walking or running through mud together, side by side. I don't know. Question. Maybe as it was raining during the flood and animals and humans were running for their life. See, evidence shows that Animals were thrown together, and they died together, and they were pressed together. That's what you see when you look at a fossil. There could have been a flood, is all I'm saying, exactly the way the Bible says that it happened. And so remember, you know, people love to talk about the age of the earth, and the age of rocks, and the age of the universe. I don't have a problem with any of that. Adam was a full-grown man on day one. He wasn't a one-day-old little tiny infant baby. So when Adam was one year old, he was a fully grown, fully developed man. So it's entirely possible that God would create all things with what we might call an age-dating factor. You know, the trees in the garden were large trees in the Garden of Eden. They weren't saplings. Um, and it's much better to just let the Bible stand on what it says about creation rather than try to marry it up with some kind of a humanistic evolutionary point of view. The two ideas are opposite, and they cannot be put together without causing compromise to the truth of the Word of God, or frankly, compromise within the evolutionary viewpoint. So let's look at verse 3. I want to talk about verse 3. Light is created. And here is that word, asa. That Hebrew word, asa, is used for light, when God created light. 
So it raises the question to be consistent here now. Did God create light from something which was already there? It could be. Um, we're not really even sure today what light is. We know its properties. We see the effects of light. But without something to reflect it or to absorb it, we would not even know that light was there. And the Bible says that God is light and that in him is no darkness at all. We know that Moses' face was shining so bright that he had to wear a veil um, after being near the Lord. And he didn't even look upon the Lord face to face. Um, and so there's many references throughout scripture to the light of heaven, uh, angels of light, uh, the seraphim, uh, the cherubim, um, all these ideas of flaming fire. So it's just interesting to contemplate that a different Hebrew word is used when it says that God created light. And I have often wondered if the light that we see around us, the light of our space and the stars and the sun and everything, is that just a portion of God's glory? Has he just, like when he passed by Moses, he has passed by his creation and he is the source of the light. Again, don't know. Bible doesn't really say. I just think it's something interesting to think about. So verse 4, God divides the light. And we know that light can be split into colors of the rainbow. We know that light is frequency, just like sound. And we get down to verse 5. It's the first day. God brings the earth out of darkness. I always love to think about this. On the first day, God brings the earth out of darkness. That's so beautiful in its implications there. Verses 6 through 8, we have the second day. The atmosphere is made with water uh, suspended above the earth. We have this reference here to the firmament that was above and the firmament below. Um, this would have made a greenhouse effect around the entire planet. It would have been a very nice and stable climate all over the world. There would have been no seasons. There would have been no ice caps. And I just want to take a moment here and talk about the atmosphere and life on earth before the flood of Noah. And I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but I just have to do it here because I can't think of any other way to get the message out. Um, it'll make sense if you stay with me all the way through the book of Genesis. You know, jungle vegetation has been found at the North and at the South Pole. Question is, is how did it get there? Um, other creatures have been found with veggies uh, still in their mouth, still in their stomach in the process of being digested. And this would imply that there was whatever catastrophically happened to these animals, um, it happened as they were going about their daily routine, if you will. Um, we also know that the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker. I don't know if you knew that, but now don't be afraid. I don't think we're all going to go flying off the surface of the Earth, but it is a fact that the magnetic field is getting weaker. It's been studied for over 135 years, and as far as I know, nothing in science has been studied and observed for that long of a period of time. So what does that mean? What, what am I driving at with a magnetic field getting weaker? Well, it means that we can calculate backwards and see how strong the magnetic field would have been in the past. 
and these calculations support a young Earth. They don't support billions of years. Why? Because you can go back to a point in time where the magnetic field is so strong that it would crush everything. So it just doesn't make sense. So um, where am I going with all this? I believe that there were added layers of water in the atmosphere. I believe that animals and humans would live longer as they are protected from neutrinos that come from the sun. Um, that's what gives us wrinkles. That's what makes us age. And you would only be about middle age when you were 450 years old. And that would explain the extraordinarily long lives we find as recorded in scripture. Now it's time for a James opinion, the world famous J.O. Now, the thing about a J.O. is that it's not scripture. It's reasonable, and it's like I said a few moments ago, I'm probably going to be getting ahead of myself, but when it comes to portions, uh, the portions of scripture that I'm going to be talking about here, when we get to it, I'll refer back to this uh, James opinion. So here we go. Uh, during Noah's flood, which does happen in the book of Genesis, the water, which was above in the firmament, I believe that it came crashing down and that the protective layer that used to be in our sky was gone forever. And after the flood, you see man's age begin to decrease according to the Bible, which we're going to read at a later episode. So Moses is credited with writing Genesis. And so the skeptic would look at that and go, well, hold on a minute now. Moses wasn't there to observe anything. You've been accusing true science of not observing. And how was Moses able to write all this about Genesis? Well, I believe, and it's entirely reasonable, that Adam probably wrote the first record and it was later edited by Moses. We know as we get into the book of Genesis, we're going to find a reference to a book of Adam. There was this character named Lamech, and Lamech was alive at the same time that Adam was alive. Well, who's Lamech? Well, Lamech is Noah's father. So Lamech could have gotten the original copy of all records from Adam directly. Lamech then gives the records to Noah. And of course, on the boat with Noah in the great flood is Shem. And Shem hears the story. Uh, Shem, Noah's son, has the story of creation, has it in written form, quite possibly in Adam's own handwriting. So Shem was alive about the same time as Abraham and Isaac. So Shem could have told the story to Abraham and Isaac, providing them with the actual written record of all these events. Isaac, who's Isaac? Well, he's Jacob's father. Well, who's Jacob? Jacob later becomes Israel. So what am I driving at? I'm driving at this. The written account of creation could have been passed only through five people by the time that Joseph is standing before Pharaoh in Egypt. And that brings us to a timeline of about 1706 B.C. So you see, Genesis is not a Jewish fairy tale handed down over multiple generations, but it's very possible that there was a written account only handed down for, you know, four to five people, written by Adam himself. 
and Moses probably drew upon these records when he wrote or edited the book of Genesis. And remember, as we're reading these things, none of these things happened in a vacuum. As time went forward, the population multiplied, and, and many people knew something, although it may have been misguided and misunderstood, but they knew something of mankind's origins. They knew something about one true living God. So as we get into these portions of Scripture, remember what I've just reflected on here, calling it James' opinion, the J-O of Genesis 1. I will make reference to it in the future as we get to these other stories. Hopefully you will see things fit together as we explore the book of Genesis with an open mind, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us along the way. As always, I hope this podcast is an encouragement to you. I hope it's a blessing to you. And I will see you on the very next podcast. Until then, God bless. Thank you again for listening to James Reed's Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome the wounds caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you, but in his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged, encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him.